For centuries, there has been considerable theological and scientific debate over the meaning of the Hebrew word rakia, used in the first chapter of Genesis to describe the entity which God created on day two of the creation week. Rakia has been variously translated as firmament, stereoma, vault, and expanse. Much of the discussion has centered upon whether or not rakia implies something solid, as the Latin word firmamentum and the Greek word used in the Septuagint stereoma imply. Stereoma refers to a solid crystalline-like sphere. In other ancient cosmologies, the idea that the heavens are made of something solid is commonplace. But is the Bible telling us that the rakia is solid? Is that really what the text of Genesis is suggesting? God creates the rakia, best translated as expanse, on day two, separating the waters above from the waters below. On day four, God creates the two great lights and the stars. He places the sun, moon, and stars into the rakia. The Bible is not specific about what the rakia is made of if it is made of anything. There are some uses of rakia elsewhere in the Bible that have metaphorical connotations of tent canvases or hammered metals, but nothing conclusive to suggest that the rakia of Genesis has any solidity to it. Writing in 1908, the astronomer E.W. Maunder says, quote, the reason for thinking that the Hebrews did not consider the firmament a solid structure are, first, that the word does not necessarily convey that meaning. Next, the attitude of the Hebrew mind toward nature was not such as to require this idea. The question, what holds up the waters above the firmament, would not have troubled them. It would have been sufficient for them, as for the writer to the Hebrews, to consider that God was, quote, upholding all things by the word of his power, end quote, and they would not have troubled about the machinery, end quote. So what is the rakia? Does it imply that our universe has a finite boundary, an edge bordered by water? Do these questions matter to us, or is this just some sort of esoteric discussion for academics and scientists? By no means. We think this will be quite a fascinating episode for you to consider. For we at Good Heavens believe that the heavens are all about the glory of God in Christ, and that the best kind of astronomy centers itself upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus and His Word. On this two-part episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I talk with veteran astronomer Dr. Danny Faulkner, the chief astronomer for Answers in Genesis. Danny gives us his insights into what he understands the rakia to be and how he is using rakia as a foundation for a biblical cosmology. As we began our discussion, I first asked Danny if he gets any negative pushback from other non-Christian astronomers and scientists for being a Christian and working in the realm of creation astronomy. Dr. Danny Faulkner. I don't see it that much, really. Uh, what, what I do, I, I, I generally can talk to people about it, but I really don't get a lot of blowback, believe it or not, from, from evolutionists or from non-creationists. 
Why? Why do now? I, I'm seeing it from the apologetic side of things because I'm not in the formal field of science, uh, the science of astronomy. I'm not a practicing PhD astronomer. Do you think there's just a, a more congenial, civil level of discourse among the professionals that you talk with? Oh, oh yeah, d- definitely. I, I, I don't really get any hostility. There are a number of people who know I'm a creationist. <clears throat> there's a group of uh, of, of Christian astronomers uh, self-identified mm-hmm. so you don't have a litmus test if you say you're a christian astronomer it's a it's part of the american astronomical society a little group within that then then you're in and we go to we go to the american astronomical society meetings we generally go to lunch one day and and uh, the people there could not be more kind and gracious to me even though none of them agree with me on the age of the uh, age issue at all mm. uh, they're just very respectful and I, mm. and I think, as you, as you said, uh, I think among the astronomers, they're much more cordial and much more civil than you find with a biologist. And in fact, most, <laughs> most creationists, when they think of evolution, most Christians, they think of evolution, they think of biology. They, that's mm. all they think about. And, and maybe they'll think about geology. And it's, it's a little hostile there, too, though. I don't think quite as hostile as it is with the biologists. When it comes to astronomy, it's just not making inroads with many people, Christians and non-Christians alike. So... I've had very little blowback over the years, surprisingly. Mm, mm, that's interesting. And I, I, I agree with you that um, I see much more push in fields of geology and biology when it comes to the sciences. But I, I'm regularly interacting with atheists, so you'll have to forgive <laughs> my impression of, of how things are going here. I think there's something else going on, too. Uh, among astronomers, I think you'll you'll find a, a higher percentage of, if you may, what do I say, fringe ideas. Sir Fred Hoyle hmm. was a very well-respected man. The things he did, he did a lot of incredible things. He, he should have gotten a Nobel Prize. But hmm. he pursued a lot, a lot of wacky, well, uh, maybe wacky is too strong of a term, but he, he pursued some ideas that were not considered in the mainstream of astronomy. And there are many other examples like that, too. Halton Arp is one. Um, most mm-hmm. astronomers disagreed with him, but I understand when he would speak at meetings, he, it was standing room only. Everybody wanted to hear what, what Arp had to say. And so astronomers right. have a long, long history of tolerating some, some mavericks and some, some people that maybe stray off the reservation a little bit. I don't think biologists or geologists are quite that tolerant. Okay. Yeah, because in, uh, in the area of cosmology and astronomy, you are dealing in metaphysical things and and really cutting edge ideas i mean just half a century ago people were like black holes no way you know um with eddington and 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 oppenheimer i mean the idea of black holes just seemed counterintuitive and and crazy and now we perform we 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 pursue multiverses and and all of these other theories about what might have preceded the big bang if there is such a thing as before the big bang and so yeah i can see your point there's a lot of a, a lot more strange ideas, if you will, um, unusual ideas, you know, I mean, quantum physics is counterintuitive. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's a good point. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. And I want to give you full platform to talk about, um, astronomy because that's what we love. Wayne and I, that's our thing and we love astronomy. And so, uh, we have both been looking through your book, which came out in 2017. Is that correct? The expanse of heaven. The Expansive Heaven Young Creative Cosmos came in 2016. Okay. And just briefly about 
this book, uh, which I read it was just a, a year or two ago. I read it. Um, what was it, th- there? Are two books there: well, the Created Cosmos and the Expanse of Heaven. What was your um, inspiration for sitting down and and, and writing these things? Uh, was it was it for the general population? Was it uh, what inspired you to uh, to to put these together? Well, th- definitely these those two books were written for the the general population, not for scientists or fellow astronomers per se. Um, you know, there have been some books written in the past on on biblical astronomy. Uh, two were written in the uh, first decade of the 20th century. Uh, one was done by E.W. Maunder and the other one uh, by an Italian. And he just did the Old Testament. Maunder did both the Old and New Testaments. And I, it occurred to me when I, I read through the books a few, number of years ago, and, I, and it occurred to me that that there, you need to do this analysis of biblical astronomy occasionally, and once a century probably is not not often enough. So the time was right <laughs> to do it. And I had spent a considerable amount of time a year or two before that, that, that earlier book trying to sort through what I, biblical cosmology, just what is this rachia, the expanse or firmament of, of day two, I thought for years this was a key thing for developing a true creation-based astronomy, and I just I kind of collected together some articles I'd already written. I um, I wrote a few additional ones. I ex- expanded and edited those into chapters, and um, my approach for the first book was to just discuss everything that that, that the Bible says about astronomical phenomena, dealing with day two rakia, dealing with day four creation dealing with um, apocalyptic. I have a whole chapter in that book just on apocalyptic things with uh, remarkable things in the heavens going on. So when I finished the book, it occurred to me that, well, I had, hadn't discussed the creation science at all. And so I, uh, uh, creation science of astronomy. So that's what caused me to write the second book. Did that right after I finished the first book. So that's why they came out a year apart from one another. And that's why we, I made the books the same size, the different colors, and uh, put them together. One has a blue cover and one has a red cover. So I call one of them my Democratic book and the other my Republican book. <laughs> um, and, and the prior, in the, in the past, there was one really good book on creation science of astronomy. It was Paul Steitel's book uh, back in 1979. Uh, Wayne, can you help me out on the title of that book? I can't remember. Uh, the Earth, the Stars, and the Bible. Okay, that's it. I, I've, and, I've read that. Yeah, it's it's actually a well done book. I, I really yeah. was impressed with it, and um, uh, the the um, the book was in print for about six months, and it's been out of print for for forty some years. But it was very well done. It's uh, the Paul Steitel did a fantastic job of researching it and writing it. And I think it was the most complete discussion of creation astronomy up to that point. And he kind of blended some of the uh, elements of my first book on that uh, with biblical astronomy with the creation science of astronomy. So anyway, it's a good good resource, but it was, it, was, it was in print for such a short length of time that it's a hard to find resource and it needed to be updated too. So um, I, was trying to, I was trying to address those shortcomings in the market out there. So I, I intend the two books kind of like be a match set between the two of them, uh, a rather complete discussion of 
creation astronomy, biblical astronomy, all in one, you know, together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to read uh, the passage from Genesis that uh, your book, um, that's implied in the title of your book, The Expanse of Heaven. And this comes from Genesis and uh, the first chapter of Genesis. And it is in verse six, after God has created the darkness and the light and the day and the night, in verse six, it says, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and morning a second day. Now, that's the uh, New American Standard Bible translation. And uh, so, uh, Dr. Faulkner, launch into this and your experience and your study and your research about what this thing is that God calls the expanse, or in Hebrew, the rakiah. It's one of those things I struggled with uh, 50 years ago now when I was a high school student, felt my calling to be a creation astronomer. I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to go back to the beginning. I began writing Genesis chapter 1. I've been reading that, and I came across this thing in the firmament. It was I didn't have an NASB at the time. It was kind of new anyway. And so I read this firmament, and I thought, well, what is this? And I couldn't get any answers. We have many more resources now we had a half century ago. But the... Uh, um, the, the translation history is, is a mess on this. The, the Septuagint translated it the, the, uh, as stereoma, which is uh, something hard or something firm. Uh, the word appears once in the New Testament uh, when Apostle Paul wrote to stand firm in the gospel. That's the word he used. And I'm convinced the Septuagint translators were attempting to... Uh, put in the Bible, their, their understanding of cosmology, just as many people today want to read Genesis 1 in terms of Big Bang and things like this, they were doing the same thing, except in the third century BC, they were actually translating it into Greek from the Hebrew, and um, they chose that word. And it was at that point, the Greek cosmology was that the earth was surrounded by a celestial sphere, this hard crystalline thing very far away from the earth, much larger radius than the earth had. And um, uh, that's, they, they did that because on day four, God makes it pretty clear that he puts the stars and other heavenly bodies in this thing. And they, they knew, quote unquote, 2000 plus years ago that, that, that this place where the stars were had to be this celestial sphere. So therefore, they, that's why they translate it that way. Jerome um, punted. He didn't really translate it either. He, he just went with what the Septuagint wrote, used the uh, Latin word firmamentum, which means much the same thing, something hard. Then uh, the first English translation uh, of Genesis, or the Bible into English, was uh, uh, Wycliffe's translation, 600 650 years ago, and in there, he just transliterated the Latin firmamentum into firmament. Keep in mind that uh, Wycliffe didn't know Hebrew and Greek. He was working for the Vulgate, the, the Latin the Latin Bible, so he just transliterated that, and that's what most, most translators used for quite a long time, even though they knew better. You know, Martin Luther commented five centuries ago that he didn't understand why the uh, Septuagint translated stereoma, because it's, that's what it means. It means 
an expanse. That's what he said, you know, in the 20th century, latter part of the 20th century, people started translating it right as the expanse. And it's caused a huge amount of confusion in many people, myself and many other people that people today still continue to be confused by that. Yeah, Danny, uh, what, what's, uh, you might know this, but there's a difference between the NIV and the 1984 version of it and the 2011 version and they they had it right in 1984 and then they changed it in the 2011 they so changed it as vault or something yeah they changed it to vault in, in in 2011 a few years ago i was looking something up online and it said the niv said vault i said wait a minute I, it doesn't say that it says expanse yeah. i checked it out and you're right in 2011 they changed it to read vault which is far worse than firmament even yeah they they went back to the old goose up and and then and then uh, Henry Morris and John Whitcomb come along in the you know now sixty years ago, and they argued that the rakia was the Earth's atmosphere, and that God made the celestial realm where God he put the stars he made that on day one beginning of day one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth that's where God made space according to that, and that God made the Earth's atmosphere on day two. And, and Wayne, you probably were raised up on this teaching just as much as I was. Yeah. And and it took me decades to get over that. And I suspect it took you decades to get over that too, huh? Well, yeah. I I mean, I can see where it could it could it could mean Earth's atmosphere, but I I don't go along with the canopy idea anymore. But I but I think it could mean something in space. But in the Bible, it doesn't really distinguish between our atmosphere and outer space that's because the space and atmosphere are fairly modern concepts yes Um, unless it's talking about the birds then you have a clue right and if it's talking about the stars then you have a clue yeah well the the you're right the the point of what wickham and morris were doing uh was to support the canopy model and I, I was a supporter of the canopy model. That's what I was taught. You were taught the same thing. And then eventually, slowly, people one by one begin to realize, wait a minute, this canopy model isn't going to work. Uh, it, it, scientifically and biblically, it's just really a, it's problematic. And uh, so by really by the 1980s, there were a number of people who were straying off the reservation. You know, Answers in Genesis was founded in 1994, I think. And... AIG has never endorsed the canopy model. That's kind of a cool thing. By that time, I had, I had abandoned it too. But here's the problem. We have been interpreting day two creation in terms of the canopy for so long that we, we kind of divorced the two and didn't realize how dependent the atmosphere model, atmosphere interpretation of the Rakia was. And, and, and one day I was looking, I said, well, wait a minute, shouldn't we, if we reevaluate the canopy model, model and we just, just discard that, shouldn't we reinterpret what we've been saying about what this thing on day two is? And it's, again, pretty clear on, on day four, God three times, not once, not twice, but three times says that he put the star, the heavenly bodies, the luminaries, in the firmament or expanse of heaven they put those two together and as you read there god equated the expanse with heaven and i I think he did it three times on day four lest there be any doubt what he's talking about that this is a thing he made on day two is where he put them and your point about the no distinction really between space and atmosphere in the bible is a good one because 
Uh, we don't even today, we can't d distinguish the differences between them. Now on, on verse 20, uh, the, in the day, beginning of the day five account, it says, let the birds fly across the face of the expanse of heaven. And to me, that face is the surface, it's, it's the near side. And so the idea that, and I think, you know, with the canopy model, we were getting it backwards. We were saying, well, the, the expanse is where the birds are and the heavenly bodies are appear in that. No, that's getting it completely reversed. The heavenly bodies are in the, are deep in this, this thing that God made on day two. And the birds are on the near side. The expanse includes both what we call space today and the atmosphere. It's basically everything above the earth. I wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, because I think it adds some clarity to what the Bible is actually saying. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, the Exodus crossing as a sort of hermeneutic for understanding maybe a little bit more about what God does in creation. Because in uh, Exodus 14, we have waters being divided. And then in the midst of that division of waters, God puts the children of Israel and it's almost like a recreation of creation there on the stage in Egypt. What do you think of that? Well, yeah, I've heard I've heard that comparison made. The the only difference is I think the the difference, uh, the dividing of the waters was left to right or side to side in in Exodus, and the in day two it was a division above and below, uh, between the two. But mm -hmm. you're right, it is a division. There's a nice parallel there, I think. And Wayne and I did a whole uh, podcast on stars in the Bible. Uh, remember that way? That was fun because we were in that cafe, the, the, the coffee shop, and they had this book called Stars and, and, and what was it? Stars in the Cafe? But that was Hollywood celebrities. <laughs> cafe and stars. And it was just movie stars sipping on their lattes or whatever. But that book was on the table where we where we did our podcast. But it got us to thinking about the way in which sometimes um, in the Old Testament uh, that stars like Daniel 12.3 uh, those who lead the many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. And it's almost like Israel is a kind of celestial light. You are the light of the world there in the midst of the uh, the expanse in, in some regard. Um, I just, you know, it's it, to me, it doesn't really tell us what the rakia is made of. It just shows us that, that, that God is doing these things. And I think that's the, the wonderful point of it, that, that God, the Lord, Yahweh, has done these things and uh and it, it's all about his glory right psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of god and so uh, you know and the the exodus crossing reminds me of jesus's prayer as well um the the disciples prayer you know uh your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens and so there you have in the exodus crossing something like that i think in, in some regard um so it, it's kind of my own crazy thing that I think of sometimes. But in your research, let's talk about what you've uncovered more about now in the how how what you've you've taken the Bible foundationally and you've peeled back this idea of what the rakia really is. Now, what are you finding in your scientific research and in, in your astronomy work, Daniel? How what, what are you seeing now that that may be similar or parallel to to scripture? Well, before before we move on from that a little bit, I, I, I do want to acknowledge a possible criticism of what I just said. Um, I've criticized the Septuagint translators for translating the Bible in terms of how they understood cosmology, 
I've criticized people, many people today who want to read Big Bang into the Bible. People can say, well, Danny, when you start talking about this being space, aren't you, uh, aren't you reading into the Bible there? And, and I'm well aware of that possibility. Um, I'll say two things in my defense. Number one, I am a product of the 20th and now 21st century. I have a way of looking at the world, which I cannot avoid. It's a way I understand the world around me. And the other thing is the fact that um, I'm trying to I'm trying to put my understanding in terms of what scriptures reveals here. And uh, if if a person acknowledges and is right is well aware of the of the possible biases and the possible uh, filters that they're looking at at scripture, then they can they can much more more easily. Recognize that and accommodate the fact that they're they're doing that. It's when people you know kind of blind to that, thinking they don't have any bias, they don't have a filter, and I, that's where the problem comes in. So I want I want to point out to people uh, I, I recognize that I could be criticized for reading into, into scripture here, but I don't think that's what I'm doing. I want to make that very clear. Having having said that, this happened about six years ago. I, I finally got this. My thinking's kind of straightened out. I think what the Rakia is. It really rocked my world incredibly vis-a-vis uh, -vis cosmology, because if if the, if, if the rakia is this thing that's expanded off of the Earth, then I'm going to think it's somewhat symmetrical off of the Earth, and and so that suggests a couple of things here. Number one, it suggests that there's a physical edge to to space. The universe ends somewhere mm. out there. And that's anathema mm -hmm. to modern cosmology uh, completely. Uh, most mm -hmm. astronomers, most cosmologists believe that if that, that if space is finite, it doubles back on itself. It's it's bent back around. The two-dimensional analogy is given to a surface of a sphere. There is no edge to the to the to the surface of the sphere, but it has a finite size. The other possibility is the universe is infinite, in which case an edge makes no sense. So almost nobody thinks of the universe as coming to a physical edge, boundary to it. I do now. <laughs> and mm. Can I explain that physically? Of course not. But I, I think that's what scripture is telling me. And the second thing it's telling me is I think that the earth is somewhere near the center of the universe. It doesn't have to be exactly at the center. I'm not teaching geocentrism here in, in the sense that you know everything goes around us. I'm simply saying we just happen to be located near the center because they, I think the universe, the, God expanded the universe off of the earth. And so it's almost inevitable we would have to be near the center. Earth came first. Yes. In scripture. Yeah. 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 And so, Danny, what you're saying reminds me of something that I have been, Wayne and I, I don't know if we, we've talked about this a few times, Wayne. We did on one of our podcasts. We talked about the, uh, and uh, Danny, I'm sure you already know this, the, uh, what, what the astronomers are calling the axis of evil in the cosmic microwave background radiation. The, uh, the monopoles, the dipole, and I think the octopole. So when they look at all the sampling of the, the temperature variations in, the, in what is believed to be the earliest part of the universe, maybe what you would consider now to be the edge of the universe, if, if the measurements from COBE and, and Planck satellites are correct, that we're actually looking at what appears to be quartered and eighths of, of cosmic temperature background radiation similarities that it looks like these similarities are lined up 
in in eighths, in fourths, in in halves, that just above the Earth, if you will, just above the North Pole, there's a, a temperature variation, and just below the Earth, there's a temperature variation. And it looks like the cosmic microwave background radiation has an imprint of our solar system within it. And this just seems to be, as you say, anathema to, to what we would expect from Big Bang microwave background cosmology, right? Am I making sense? Oh, yeah. The, the, if, if, if the CMB is truly, co truly cosmic and predates the Earth completely, then there should be no orientation at all uh, with, with anything remotely associated with the Earth. You mentioned the Maxis of Evil. It it's this long, long ridge of, of slightly above average temperatures that runs for sixty degrees. That's one sixth the way around the sky. And and the uncanny thing is that it it aligns with the the ecliptic, the plane of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, nobody knows what caused that, wow. that axis of evil, and nobody can explain why it's. It's aligned with the ecliptic, other than the fact that it's that it's just coincidence would be the argument. And this this brings in a third point about how this rocked my cosmology. And I remember the day. I don't remember the date. I wish I'd written it down. But I I had been sorting through this whole thing with Rakia, trying to figure out the biblical cosmology. And um, I, I I finally started writing this up. And this you know this takes a few. It takes a few days, maybe a week or two, to write this thing up the way you really want to write it. Uh, writing can be a really slow process. And I've been working for maybe about a half an hour when suddenly this this idea came to me all at once, just bam, uh, blasted me. And and uh, again, I wish I'd written the date down, but um, I thought in the, in the middle of working on something on this, I suddenly stopped and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, if there's If there's water... At the edge of the universe and that's what the purpose of this rakia was is separate waters above from waters of below so not only is the earth near the center not only is there an edge but at this edge there's water there and according to the third law of thermodynamics it should have a temperature it may be pretty low but it should have a temperature and all things that all normal matter that has temperature must radiate and if it's if it's water, if it's liquid water, which I think the word Mayim used there, if you have no wiggle room on it is, then it's going to give off a black body spectrum. So the prediction is kind of late, but the prediction is that this water should give off a black body spectrum. If you understand the Hubble relation, you know distant objects are going to have their spectrum redshifted so this is going to be shifted towards a very cool end of the spectrum so i would expect the universe to be to have some sort of black body radiation coming from every direction which is exactly what the cmb is if the big bang never happened then where did the cmb the cosmic microwave background come from and for you know 20 years plus all i could say was that's a great question i don't know but this kind of just fell into my lap and then uh, when, I, when I realized the import of that, it, it gave me what the CMB might be. I'm, I've been suggesting now for several years that the CMB might be radiation from this water that was lifted off of the Earth, the proto-Earth, if you will, there on day two. I don't think you're the only creationist that has suggested something like this, right? I mean, No, there have been a few others, but maybe not the same way I have. Yeah. A number of us have gotten to the same position by different different paths, I think. 
Uh, right. Who are you thinking of particularly, Wayne? Uh, Russ Humphreys. And yeah, his... Russ, Russ is the one that, that and again, he, he took a different tack than I did, but mm -hmm. he's making much the same claim that I am. He had, now his model has changed, and I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm current on it, but he had a, the idea of a finite size universe where space was expanded in the beginning, and then that there was uh, water out at the edge, as and as God expanded, this had a time dilation effect at the edge, but he has water out at the outside. And and Danny, to to give you even more encouragement, um, before I read your book, and uh, and I've talked to this talked to Wayne about this, and I think Wayne even before I met you, um, that I had this same idea. Now I'm not a scientist, so how do I in the world do I express this? <laughs> But I had the same idea that the cosmic microwave background radiation was the low temperature variation of the other water that God separated from Earth. And, you know, it, it, it was like you. I had this idea. I don't know if I was reading the Bible, but it's like, oh, I'm a layman with a crazy idea. I'm not going to – I mean, I get stories from – I interview a lot of other scientists who get emails all the time from people with crazy theories, right? <laughs> so I don't want to, like, litter somebody's inbox with my, my crazy theory. But – but it just absolutely makes so much sense. And I, I, I really appreciate now being able to talk to you and, and seeing how this could actually be science. And, you, know, you know, 40 years ago, I had a, a person I went to church with, and I can't remember who it was now. I think I know who it was, but I'm not sure. Uh, but this would have been like 1979, 1980, who suggested to me that, that there was water at the edge of the universe. And then I thought, I told him, I said, that's just, that, I, that's just a dumb idea. That's a crazy idea. And the problem was I was still hung up on the, the canopy sort of model. And, um, uh -huh. and then, you know, this, with this thing, finally, I went full circle. And I thought, well, all these lay people were getting it long before I was. You probably thought of this well, before I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us with the physics and astronomy background, Danny, we... We have to learn humility and all of this. Uh, well, Wayne has been my uh, scientific grounding to good heavens for over three years now. And as Wayne knows, I have the craziest creative imagination of, of all things. I just I just think it really – I think in Technicolor, I guess. So uh, it's so cool to have one of my crazy ideas actually have some scientific footing. I'm so excited about this. And it's not my idea. It was just something I've had for a long time. Well, I'm just—I think though this is this is really a breakthrough for us. No matter you know who who got it first, when we got it, you know, a number of us have independently, by our own method pathways, have gotten to the same conclusion, and it's encouraging me to hear you know find yes. that people have had the same idea. So, um, I think this is a true beginning of, of building a biblical cosmology for the first time. Um, you know, yes. Russ, yes. Russ is a good friend, and, and Russ's attempt was not not so much motivated to find the biblical cosmology he's been motivated for 30 years at least to, to solve the light travel time problem that's been his his primary focus and um mm -hmm. i i approach this thing without trying to solve that problem at all i was taking a, a totally different tact and again that's what i mean by people coming to the same conclusion but from different pathways We hope you've enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Danny Faulkner, the Chief Astronomer of Answers in Genesis. 
And we hope you'll tune in next week as we continue our conversation about Danny's 2017 book, The Expanse of Heaven, and we address some questions I received for Danny about astronomy from people on Twitter. For Good Heavens, I'm Watchman Fellowship staff apologist Daniel Ray. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Thanks for listening to another episode of Good Heavens, a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information about Good Heavens or other topics and podcasts related to apologetics, world religions, and cults, visit watchman.org today. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell.